Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents that may not be suitable for children. If you struggle with addiction, feel depressed or have suicidal thoughts and you need support, please contact your local crisis centre or reach out to a friend to ask for help. Rockstar Brian Jones was discovered motionless at the bottom of his pool at 11.15pm on the night of July 2nd, 1969, at his Cotchford Farm estate in England. It was less than a month after being kicked out of one of the most famous bands in the world, the Rolling Stones. Earlier that evening, he had enjoyed dinner and drinks with friends and a late-night swim with his girlfriend, Anna Wallin, and contractor, Frank Thorogood, who had been remodelling his home. Anna had jumped out of the pool to answer the phone, and Jones asked another friend at the dinner party, Janet Lawson, to look for his inhaler because he was having a hard time breathing. She left Brian and Frank alone to enjoy their swim. Less than an hour later, Lawson, a registered nurse, would return to shockingly find Brian Jones's lifeless body at the bottom of his swimming pool. In a panic, Anna called 999, and Lawson desperately performed CPR on Jones for over 15 minutes to no avail. When the ambulance arrived shortly after midnight, Brian Jones, at the age of 27, was pronounced dead. Later, the coroner's report would state his backstage exit to the afterlife was a death by misadventure and noted drug and alcohol abuse, along with a massively enlarged liver and heart contributed to his drowning. However, many believe the circumstances surrounding his mysterious death is suspect and others believe he was murdered. Join us on a supernatural journey as we explore the conspiracy theories, investigate the mystical facts, dive into Brian Jones' musical history and rise to rock stardom, and how it all ended one night at the bottom of a pool when he joined the Deadly 27 Club. This is Death by Misadventure. Jones was born February 28, 1944, under the zodiac sign of Pisces, in Cheltenham in Gloucestershire County, 98 miles to the west of London. A sensitive child, he suffered a severe attack of croup at the age of four, which left him with a lifelong problem of asthma. He had two sisters, Pamela, who was born on 3rd of October 1943, and sadly died on 14th of October 1945 of leukaemia, and Barbara, born on the 22nd of August, 1946. Jones had musical, well-to-do parents. His mother taught piano, and his father dabbled with keyboard instruments. Jones listened to classical music as a child, but preferred blues, notably Elmore James and Robert Johnson. His parents sent him to the finest schools, but he was a nonconformist from the first grade on. His hostility to authority figures resulted in his suspension from school on two occasions. Dick Hattrell, a childhood friend, was quoted as saying, he was a rebel without a cause, but when examinations came, he was brilliant. 
He disliked the school uniforms and angered teachers with his behaviour, though he was popular with his classmates. Jones was a brilliant scholar, excelling in English and music, but he hated sports. I couldn't stand all that organisation, he once said, and put homework aside so that he could listen to records and the radio. He was a natural musician and could seemingly play any instrument within minutes of picking it up. He received his first acoustic guitar at the age of 17 and taught himself how to play. In late summer 1959, Jones's 17-year-old girlfriend, a Cheltenham schoolgirl named Valerie Corbett, became pregnant. Although Jones is said to have encouraged her to have an abortion, she carried the child to term and placed baby Barry David, later Simon, up for adoption. Jones quit school in disgrace and left home, travelling for a summer through Northern Europe and Scandinavia. During this period, he lived a bohemian lifestyle, playing his guitar on the streets for money and living off the charity of others. Eventually, he ran out of money and returned to England. In November of 1959, Jones went to the Wooden Bridge Hotel in Guildford to see a band perform. He met a young married woman named Angeline, and the two had a one-night stand that resulted in her pregnancy. Angeline and her husband decided to raise the baby, Belinda, born on the 4th of August 1960. Jones was rumoured to have never known about the birth of his baby girl. He continued down an artistic path, and in 1961, Jones applied for a scholarship to Cheltenham Art College. He was accepted into the programme, but two days later, the offer was withdrawn after an unidentified acquaintance wrote to the college, calling Jones an irresponsible drifter. Could the call have been made by a parent of an ex-girlfriend? Or another jealous musician? Perhaps. Afterwards, Jones continued planting his seed with love-struck young women, and on the 23rd of October 1961, Jones's girlfriend, Pat Andrews, gave birth to his third child, Julian Mark Andrews. He sold his record collection to buy flowers for Pat and clothes for the newborn, and even decided to play house for a while. Pat was quoted as saying in a recent Sun interview, she fell in love with Brian in 1960 on a blind date in Cheltenham, Gloucestershire, where he was living at the time. She was a 15-year-old virgin with strict religious parents, and he was an 18-year-old rocker who had already had a love child. She did her best to maintain the stable lifestyle in London with Brian and their son Mark, but it proved impossible because he could not resist sleeping around. She said, It was too much, and eventually I moved back to Cheltenham. I tried never to pay attention to the Rolling Stones after that, but of course, I was devastated. Finally, on April the 7th, 1962, destiny struck for the rambling musician, when Mick Jagger and Keith Richards decided to catch a show at a London blues club and saw Brian Jones perform for the first time. Performing that night was the Ealingworth Blues Incorporated, the highly respected collective led by Alexis Corner. On that fateful evening, Corner's stage band included drummer Charlie Watts and a young guitarist calling himself Elmo Lewis, also known as Brian Jones. Little did they know that soon a magical musical bond would be formed, and it would be called the Rolling Stones. Bandmates Mick Jagger and Keith Richards first met at the Dartford Railway Station 
on October 17, 1961, when they were teens. The moon was in Capricorn conjunct Saturn on that fateful day, and it would solidify a karmic connection that would result in a lifelong musical friendship. They shared a mutual love of blues music and formed a band they called Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. However, there was a missing ingredient from their lineup. Destiny called and the Angel of Rock and Roll would play a cosmic role in bringing together the initial founding members of the Rolling Stones. When Jagger and Richards met Jones on April 7, 1962, the moon was in Taurus conjunct Venus. It was love at first guitar chord. Jones's big number that night was a slide-fueled cover of Elmore James' Dust My Broom, and the young blues disciples Jagger and Richards came away thoroughly impressed. As told by Ultimate Classic Rock, Jagger and Richards had not yet made the same inroads into the London blues scene that Jones had already forged. But it soon changed, and before long, they would end up working their way into Blues Incorporated's rock shows. Once established in one another's circle, they created a musical bond, and Jones decided to exit the Alex Corner group and set about putting together his own blues band. Jagger, by then a part-time frontman for Blues Incorporated, soon joined Jones, and just as Alex Corner might have predicted, Richards immediately followed and their fellow blue boy guitarist Dick Taylor. The Rolling Stones were on their way, and rock and roll would never be the same. Decca Records, which had previously declined to sign a deal with the Beatles, gave the Rolling Stones their first recording contract with favorable terms. Jagger proved to be an astute businessman at a young age, and the band got three times a new band's typical royalty rate full artistic control of the recordings and ownership of the master tapes, which was completely unheard of in those days. A cover version of Chuck Berry's Come On was the Rolling Stones' first single, released on June 7, 1963. The band refused to play it at live gigs, and Decca bought only one ad to promote the record. With Oldham's direction, fan club members bought copies at record shops, pulled by the charts, helping Come On rise to number 21 on the UK singles chart. At the time, Jones continued to plant his love seed with smitten young women around London, and on the 23rd of July, 1964, another girlfriend, Linda Lawrence, gave birth to Jones's fourth love child, and they named him Julian Bryan. She would later marry the musician Donovan, who would adopt Jones's son soon after his untimely death. In early October 1964, another Jones lover, Don Malloy, announced to Brian and the band's management that she was pregnant. She received a check for 700 pounds from Andrew Oldham. In return, she signed a confidential agreement and promptly gave her son up for adoption. The papers were signed by Don Malloy and witnessed by Mick Jagger. By this time, the Rolling Stones' popularity had exploded, and the band's second UK LP, The Rolling Stones No. 2, was released in January 1965 and reached number one on the charts. The US version, released in February as The Rolling Stones Now, reached number five. Their first international number one hit was I Can't Get No Satisfaction, recorded in May 1965, 
during the band's third North American tour. Richards recorded the guitar riff that drives the song with a fuzz box as a scratch track to guide a horn section. The album, Aftermath, released in the late spring of 1966, was the first LP to be composed entirely of Jagger Richards' songwriting partnership. It reached number one in the UK and number two in the US. In early 1967, Jagger, Richards, and Jones began to be hounded by the police over their rampant drug use, especially after the tabloid News of the World ran a three-part feature entitled Pop Stars and Drugs, Facts That Will Shock You. On February 12th, Sussex police tipped off by the paper raided a party at Richards' home. No arrests were made at the time, but Jagger, Richards, and their friend, art dealer Robert Frazier, were subsequently charged with drug offenses. Andrew Oldham was afraid of being arrested and fled to America. In March 1967, the wheel of fortune turned again for the band. Jagger, Richards, and Jones would take a fateful trip to Morocco. Accompanied by Marianne Faithful, Jones's girlfriend Anita, and other friends. During this trip, the volatile relationship between Brian Jones and his girlfriend Anita exploded, to the point that she left Morocco with his bandmate Keith Richards instead. Richards would later say, that was the final nail in the coffin with Brian and me. He never forgave me for that, and I don't blame him, but hell, shit happens. Anita soon became the band's muse and Richards' full-time toxic girlfriend. Rolling Stone magazine said as soon as Keith joined romantic forces with Anita, he lost his gawky shyness and learned to strut like her, wearing her scarves and shirts and bangles. She was the flower of evil in the Stone's orbit, the worst of bad girls. Her grin declared she knew more about sin than any of these English schoolboys had ever imagined. Things tended to burst into flames around Anita, said Marianne Faithful, who used to call her Glinda Hindenburg. The Stones released their Satanic Majesty's Request album, which reached number three in the UK and number two in the US in December 1967, but it received unfavorable reviews. Satanic Majesties was recorded while Jagger, Richards, and Jones were awaiting official word on their court cases. The band parted ways with Oldham during the sessions. The split was friendly, but it was a completely different story behind the scenes. In 2003, Jagger was quoted as saying, The reason Andrew left was that he thought we weren't concentrating and that we were childish. It was not a great moment, really. And I think it wasn't a great moment for Andrew either. There were a lot of distractions, and you always need someone to focus you at that point. And that was Andrew's job. By the time of Beggar's Banquet's release, Brian Jones was only sporadically contributing to the band. Jagger later said in an interview that Jones at the time was not psychologically suited to the rock star lifestyle. However, the backstory tells a much different tale. In fact, this one is sad and illustrates Jagger's wicked ways. The other Stones members were notorious for having a nasty attitude towards Jones when it came to recording in the studio. Even before his downward spiral into addiction, they used to unplug his microphones whenever he played a part and acted as if they had caught it on tape. 
it was yet another example of the cruelty and disrespect that the Stones showed their old bandmate. On May 12, 1968, Brian Jones took the stage for what would be the final show with the Rolling Stones. If you believe Jagger's account, Jones's drug use had become a serious problem, and he was unable to obtain a U.S. visa to go on tour. Richards later said in an interview that at a June meeting at Jones's house, he admitted that he was unable to go on the road again and left the band. Of course, if you're familiar with the real story, everyone knows that Jones was unceremoniously dumped from the band, per Jagger's request. I believe the band's egos were clashing, and there could only be one leader in the band, and Jagger, a demanding Leah, wanted it to be him, and insisted on full control of the group. Jones, a stubborn rocker himself, thought he should be the leader, but the others disagreed. Yes, Jones, a Pisces, suffered from addiction, but Richards, a Sagittarius, did too. The difference was, Jagger and Richards were musical soulmates, and as far as they were concerned, three's a crowd, and they wanted Jones out. On July 3rd, 1969, less than a month later, a broken-hearted Brian Jones would drown under mysterious circumstances in his swimming pool. But the story doesn't end there. In her autobiography, Jagger's ex-lover Marianne Faithful said that Jagger and Richards had a real vendetta against Brian and unmercifully taunted him. Guitarist Ry Cooter observed the same thing during the Let It Bleed sessions two months before his drowning. He said Jagger was always negative towards Brian and told him he was washed up. It appeared Jagger and Richards were determined to make Jones a musical footnote in rock and roll history by trying to erase him from the band he started, named, and once led. Astrologically, the trio had a complicated relationship. Brian Jones had Sun in Pisces and Moon in Pluto and Leo. When he was sober, he was brilliant, funny, and wildly creative. However, it was all squared by Taurus, which made him stubborn and emotionally erratic. Keith Richards was a free-spirited Sagittarius, squared by Moon and Virgo. He had a fierce independence and was a cool character. Jones got on his nerves, and he found him to be overly sensitive. However, Jagger was much stronger than the two, with his son in Leo and Moon and Mars conjunct in Taurus. He was, and still is, a force to be reckoned with, and he had quite a sadistic streak. Jagger was measured in his approach to business, and he didn't allow his emotions to get in the way of what made financial sense. In the end, he felt Jones had become a liability to the band. He once famously said, either you're dead or you just move along. Sir Mick, the ultimate rock survivor. Marianne Faithful was a much more empathetic friend when it came to Brian's drug addiction. She later wrote in her memoir, One of the things that keeps you alive when you're on the skids is that people care what happens to you, she wrote. It's your lifeline, and with Brian he felt nobody really cared anymore. The real wild card in the bunch, I think, was Anita Pollenberg, 
the Stones' sex muse, and I believe she was the catalyst for pushing Brian Jones out of the band. She was another Yoko Ono. Anita first met the Stones backstage at a concert in Munich in 1965. Reportedly, the band was initially terrified of her. Keith Richards was quoted as saying about his Aries lover, Anita scared the pants off of me. She knew everything and she could say it in five languages. She is the type of person who decides who wins and who should die in the battle. Anita first became romantically involved with Brian Jones, who fell madly in love with her. They argued a lot and the relationship eventually turned sour. Anita, however, was no victim. Keith Richards once said, Every time they had a fight, Brian would come out bandaged and bruised. After her vacation from Helen, Morocco with Jones and the Stones, she dumped Brian for Keith. Tony Sanchez, who served as Richards' personal assistant, said about Anita, She was a black magic witch who regularly cast spells and carried strings of garlic to ward off vampires. Marianne Faithful added, At the center, like a phoenix on her nest of flames, she was the wicked Anita. Dazzling, beautiful, hypnotic, and unsettling. Other women evaporated next to her. Yes, and it looks like guitar players, too. Had Anita cast a spell on the stones and called in evil forces to have Brian banished from the band and later to the afterlife? The week that Jones was kicked out of the band, the Stones traveled to Brian's home and fired him. I felt sorry for him, drummer Charlie Watts later wrote. We took his one thing away, which was being in a band. I'm sure it nearly killed him when we sacked him. On June 8, 1969, the moon was in Pisces, and Brian Jones shocked Rolling Stone fans by issuing a media statement that he was officially leaving the band. He said, I no longer see eye-to-eye eye with the others over the records we're cutting. Spiritually, it was the beginning of the end for the soulful guitar player. Days after he was fired, Mick and Marianne threw the I Ching to see what the future might hold for Jones. Death by Water came up. The prophecy was repeated on a second throw. Yes, evil lurked in the shadows, and Jones' final bow was not far away. When we examine the mystical facts surrounding Brian Jones' mysterious drowning, it appeared it may have been fueled by some deadly supernatural force. Earlier that evening, Jones had dinner with friends, and later they headed to the patio for drinks. Janet Ann Lawson, a witness who attended the dinner that night, said Anna, his girlfriend, Frank Thorogood, and Jones had decided to go for a swim. His girlfriend had gone back to the house to answer the phone, and Brian Jones then asked Lawson to go and find his inhaler and bring it down to the pool. Frank and Brian were then left alone in the pool for about 30 minutes. What happened next is in Janet Lawson's own words. I went to look for it, the inhaler, by the pool, in the music room, the reception room, and then the kitchen. Frank came in the house in a lather, his hands were shaking. He was in a terrible state. 
I thought the worst almost straight away and went to the pool to check. When I saw Brian on the bottom of the pool, I called for help. Frank initially did nothing. I shouted for Frank again as I ran towards the house. Then he burst out before I reached it, ran to the pool and instantly dived in. But I hadn't said where Brian was. I thought, how did he know Brian was at the bottom of the pool? I ran back to the house to call 999. With Frank and Anna's help, Janet dragged Brian Jones' lifeless body out of the pool. Immediately, she realized that the 27-year-old rock star was dead. However, Lawson, a registered nurse, spent 15 minutes trying to revive without success. His Swedish girlfriend, Anna, was convinced Jones was still alive when he was taken out of the pool, insisting he had a pulse. However, by the time the ambulance arrived, it was too late, and he was pronounced dead. Just days after Brian's death, Marianne Faithful attempted suicide when she miscarried Mick Jagger's child, and she fell into a six-day coma. Everyone was taking his death so in stride, for God's sake, she said. Well, I thought, I'll show you. You want pain and suffering? I'll show you pain and suffering. In her coma, she said she was met by the ghost of Brian, decked out in medieval costume, his hair green, and Buddhist lightning bolts tattooed on his palms. Beckoning to her on a cliffside, he called, Death is the next great adventure. Are you coming? She turned away as he jumped off the cliff and woke up. Jagger was the first face she saw after waking from her coma, and her first words to him were, Wild horses couldn't drag me away. It was after that he wrote Wild Horses, she remembers, even though she never received a credit. Sadly, they broke up the following year. Still, questions remained, and murder conspiracy theories loomed. In his 1994 book, Brian Jones, Who Killed Christopher Robin?, Writer Terry Rawlings states the mysterious circumstances surrounding Brian Jones' death was a cover-up for murder. The author pointed the finger at Frank Thorogood, stating that tensions between Jones and his employee turned violent during a drunken swim that night. Allegedly, Frank confessed to the deed on his deathbed in 1993, telling the band's former road manager, Tom Keelock, it was me that killed Brian. I just finally snapped. In fact, his girlfriend Anna believes Jones was murdered too. She said in a 2013 interview with the UK's Daily Mail, I don't know if Frank meant to kill Brian, she said. Maybe it was horseplay in the pool that went wrong, but I knew all along he did not die a natural death. I'm still sure of it. Did Brian Jones accidentally drown in his swimming pool that night, or was his death caused by more sinister motives? I've asked Tom Dre to look at Brian Jones's numerology chart and investigate what mystical forces may have played a factor in Brian Jones's entrance to the infamous 27 Club.
Brian Jones was the wild man of the Rolling Stones and was born with the life path number one. In his artistic career, he used the number vibration masterfully by starting one of the most famous rock bands in the world. Unfortunately, he had allowed the same powerful energy in his personal life to turn him into a train wreck of a man. He spiraled out of control into a world of alcohol and drugs and had fathered at least five children with five different women by the time he was 23. What many fans may not know is Brian Jones' country home, Cotchard Farm, was previously owned by the author of one of the world's most popular children's books, Winnie the Pooh. A.A. Milne used the home as a creative oasis for his imagination and wrote all his Winnie the Pooh books there. The house was magical, and he built a garden featuring statues of his son, Christopher Robin, and the character Owl. He even had a bench carved with images of Winnie the Pooh characters, including Piglet, Tigger, and Rue. And the words, this warm and sunny spot belongs to Pooh, and here he wonders what's its time to do. The author later died at Cotridge Farm, January 31st, 1956. And his death number was an eight. Here's where the story gets spooky. Brian Jones died on July 3rd, 1969, and his death number was an eight, just like the previous owner, Milne. Pure coincidence, or were there supernatural forces at work? No doubt, Milne's left his spiritual imprint on the home. Unfortunately for Jones, he couldn't use the creative force as a form of protection because his own personal demons stalked him and he surrounded himself by people who possibly wished him dead. Eight is a strange number and is often linked to individuals who lose their way emotionally or spiritually and suddenly turn away from their chosen destiny in life because of an unforeseen circumstance. Eight is the number of power and control. It teaches us that power in any form cannot be maintained without balance. And that balance cannot hold without accurate understanding of life and death. In Brian Jones's case, his life was cut short because many people believe he was murdered. In 1993, it was reported that Jones was killed by Frank Thorogood, who was doing some construction work on the property. He was the last person to see Jones alive. We also can't talk about the numerology influence of Brian Jones's short life without looking at the fact he died at the age of 27. In the case of Brian Jones, his death was followed by both Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison, who also died at the age of 27. We may never know what exactly happened to Brian Jones, but just the fact that he is one of the members of the infamous 27 Club shows that powerful supernatural forces were at play when he died. Ultimately, both his astrology and numerology charts point to a mysterious death that may never be solved. Mick Jagger stated in a 1995 Rolling Stone interview the reason why the band fired Jones was because his talent had started to slide. He said it happened gradually. Jones went from being obsessive about the Stones to being somewhat of an outsider. He'd turn up late to recording sessions and he'd miss the old gig now and then. He let his health deteriorate because he drank too much and took drugs, hung out too much, stayed up too late, partied too much, 
and didn't concentrate on what he was doing, which sounds like a typical rock star life. When asked if he felt guilty about Brian Jones' death, Mick Jagger was quoted as saying, No, I don't really. I do feel bad that I behaved in a very childish way, but we were very young, and in some way we picked on him. But unfortunately, he made himself a target for it. He was very, very jealous, very difficult, very manipulative. And if you do that in this kind of a group of people, you get back as good as you give, to be honest. I didn't understand enough about his drug addiction. No one seemed to know about drug addiction. Things like LSD were all new. No one knew the harm. People thought cocaine was good for you. However, Jagger continued to dismiss Jones' influence in helping create Stones' epic sound by criticising his musical input, and added, To be honest, Brian had no talent for writing songs. None. I'd never known a guy with less talent for songwriting. Other friends of the band disagree. Jagger's former girlfriend, Marianne Faithful, was quoted as saying that Jones wrote an early version of the melody for Ruby Tuesday and presented it to the group. And Victor Bokris said that Keith Richards and Brian Jones worked out the final melody in the studio. Other bandmates felt differently as well. Bill Wyman, in his memoir, Stone Alone, the story of a rock and roll band, considers Brian Jones the original guiding light. Brian was the inventor and inspiration of the Rolling Stones, he writes. The band would not have existed without him. He never received the proper credit during his life, and I intend to ensure he gets it now. Also, Keith Richards has not acted as petty as Jagger, and spoke highly of Jones in a 1989 BBC documentary. He was really the first one in the band to bring in other elements of other people's music. The sitar he was very interested, and he was very adept. Brian could walk into a studio, and no matter what instrument was lying around, even though he had not played it before, he'd be able to knock something out of it very quickly. Over the years, other rock stars have paid homage to Jones for his contribution to rock and roll, but George Harrison of the Beatles perhaps shared the most special connection with the guitarist. In an interview, Harrison, also known as the Quiet Beatle, was quoted as saying Jones would stop by his house often and they would jam. When I met him, I liked him quite a lot. He was a good fellow, you know. I got to know him very well, I think, and I felt very close to him. You know how it is with some people. You feel for them, feel near them. He was born February 28, 1943, and I was born on February 25, 1943. And he was with Mick and Keith, and I was with John and Paul in the groups. So there was a sort of understanding between the two of us. The positions were similar, and I often seemed to meet him in his times of trouble. There was nothing the matter with him that a little extra love wouldn't have cured. I don't think he had enough love or understanding. He was very nice and sincere and sensitive. And we must remember that's what he was. Ray Davies, lead singer of The Kinks, once said Jones was easily the star of the Rolling Stones, even after his death. Love him or hate him, everyone who knew Jones, minus Jagger and Richards, were mesmerised by his creativity, flamboyant style, brutal honesty, and impressed by his musical abilities.
Rolling Stones performed at a free concert in Hyde Park on the 5th of July 1969, two days after Jones's death to celebrate his life. Just before the band hit the stage, Mick Jagger came out and read from the Percy Shelley poem Adonis in tribute to Jones, after which hundreds of white butterflies were released into the summer air. We wanted to see him off in grand style, Keith Richards wrote in his autobiography, Life. The ups and downs of the guy are one thing, but when his time's over, release the doves, or in this case, the sackfuls of white butterflies. On the 10th of July, 1969, former Rolling Stones guitarist Brian Jones was laid to rest in a well-attended ceremony at Cheltenham Cemetery. Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman were the only Rolling Stones who attended Brian Jones' funeral. Thousands of fans descended upon the small town of Gloucestershire to pay their final respects to the beloved rock star and lined the streets to watch as the 14-car funeral procession made its way to his final resting place. He was rumoured to be buried in a silver and bronze casket paid for by Bob Dylan. Bill Wyman was quoted as saying, I felt it is essential to point out what a pioneer Brian was. He was the first person in England to play bottleneck guitar when nobody knew what it was. He had continued to develop his interest in different instruments and brought to the band's attention what we might have otherwise missed. As for his personality, for all his weaknesses and hang-ups, his impertinence and terrible behaviour, he was a pivotal figure. As a symbol of the 60s that helped to shape us, he was entitled to a free pardon. His father said after his death that Brian may have died of a broken heart. For many years from the formation of the Stones up to the end of 1966, Brian was extremely happy. What I firmly believe was the turning point in Brian's life was when he lost the one girl he truly loved. He changed suddenly and alarmingly from a bright enthusiastic young man to a quiet, morose and inward-looking young man. His mother and I were quite shocked by the change in his appearance. And in our opinion, he was never the same boy again. Rolling Stone magazine dedicated its 39th cover story in remembrance of the guitarist and his legacy and wrote in tribute to the rock star. If Keith Richards and Mick Jagger were the mind and body of the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones standing most of the time in the shadows, was clearly the soul. Death by Misadventure was produced by Cosmic Media and written by me, JC Nova. Our supernatural team of co-hosts includes the talented Eduardo Fahey in London, Tom Dre, our master numerologist and paranormal investigator in LA, Paul Robinson, magi and musician in Marin, and myself, I'm a psychic astrologer and paranormal investigator in Los Angeles and San Francisco. This episode was recorded at Robin Sound Studios in Marin, California, and also at Union Recording Studio in West Hollywood, California. Kudos to sound engineers Paul Robinson and Noah Shanklin. A special thanks to audio producer Christopher Lang in Tucson, who brings each episode to life 
and Paulina from Upper Planet in London. She's responsible for the super cool design of our official website. She's also the designer for one of our favorite true crime podcasts, Case File. Please like and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash death by misadventure podcast. Each episode is available for download direct via our website at deathbymisadventure.co.uk and also at iTunes, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Last but not least, our podcast is hosted by Libsyn. I'm JC Nova, and this has been Death by Misadventure. Thanks for listening. <laughs>